Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. Today is episode number 15, and we are asking a super important Bible question today. Must Christians obey the Old Testament? We're also going to be reading Genesis chapter 16, Nehemiah chapter 5, Matthew 15, and Acts 15. Now, I'm your host, Chase Thompson. I'm a pastor, a writer, a father of five, and I live in beautiful Salinas, California, on Central California. If you're in the Monterey, Seaside, Pacific Grove, Salinas area, I'd love to invite you to join us one Sunday morning at Valley Baptist Church. We meet at 1030 in the morning. It's a great group of people who are friendly and kind and love each other and love the Word of God. It doesn't matter what you wear. We'll give you a free cup of coffee and you'll hear the Word of God and you'll meet some really, really uh, unique, awesome people from all sorts of races and countries and different places. And it's a great place to be. And I'm honored to be there. Do want to apologize for the sound quality yesterday. We had a couple of mess ups in our uh, audio equipment. I think it's straightened out for the most part today. I want to point you to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Lots of show notes and stuff there. And I know I say it almost every episode, but I do want to beg you just a little bit to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Maybe even better than that, give us a share on social media. Spread the word. Our goal is to get people involved in daily Bible reading. Now, we're not so much about getting you to read the whole Bible in a year, although that's a great and fantastic goal, and I hope you do it. But I want to introduce people to daily Bible reading. And in this podcast, you can hear it, and that's just as good as as reading it. Because faith comes by hearing in that the early church, they heard the word of God. So that's a good thing. Every day we listen to four chapters and we discuss one big Bible issue. So share the word, spread the word, get your friends involved in listening to the Bible daily. Now, there are many interesting themes in today's four chapters that are we're reading. The way this podcast works, if you're new, and we do have a lot of new listeners, welcome aboard and thank you. I try and choose one big Bible question to discuss each episode, and also a spiritually encouraging quote from a, a spiritual giant about what we've read that day. My own personal goal is to try and make most of the shows under 30 minutes, though on deep talking topics that doesn't always happen. So as of now, we are 15 episodes into this daily podcast, and I can honestly tell you that in those 15 days, there's never been a single one where I've really had to sit there and scratch my head and dig deep to find a Bible topic worth talking about. I mean, the Word of God is just so deep and rich. Almost every day, I have the opposite problem. Usually, there's a dozen great things to talk about in each day's reading, and I can only choose one of them. Today, more so than almost any day prior to this, we have many, many, many great topics and themes to choose from in the Bible readings. Should we talk about the rich and powerful people abusing the families and poor people in Nehemiah? Should we talk about how honorable Nehemiah himself was and that he didn't take advantage of all the luxuries offered to him as the governor of Israel? Um, and, and how he just handled that so well because he was aware of the plight of his people. 
Should we talk about Sarai's shameful mistreatment of her servant Hagar and how the angel of the Lord intervened in that and saved the life of Ishmael, the ancestral father of the Islamic people? Could that early mistreatment have led to some of the enmity between the Jewish and Arabic peoples? It's, it's possible. Should we instead talk about how the Pharisees amplified their own human traditions and presented them as of more importance than the actual biblical commands of God? Now, I almost chose that one because, honestly, we in the church, we still have that problem to a big measure. Now, any of those above topics and actually several more would have been great for the show today, but I believe our big question today is the one I've already mentioned because it's so huge, and we're probably going to come back to it a few times as we go through the Bible this year, and that is the same topic that the first council of the gathered church ever considered— it's recorded in Acts 15. How much of the Old Testament are Gentiles like you and me? Well, most of us are Gentiles. If we're not born in Israel, how much of the Old Testament are we bound to follow? So without further introduction, and boy, that was a long one. Let's get into our primary reading of the day. Acts chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. When they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers and sisters, you are aware that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. And the whole assembly became silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, sisters, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this, as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. 
Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God, but instead we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city, and every Sabbath day he is read aloud in the synagogues. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers. They wrote, From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers and sisters among the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our dearly loved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth, for it was the Holy Spirit's decision, and ours, not to place further burdens on you beyond these requirements, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, before we dive into our main question today, let me say this one really, really huge caveat. My view on this question, and really, honestly, any of these questions we discuss in the Bible, could be very wrong. Now, I've been in ministry for over 25 years. That doesn't make me right. I've been a student of the Bible for a long time. I've been to seminary. I've got degrees. Doesn't make me right. I have wrestled with this particular question for over a decade, and this one in particular makes me tremble. I believe that the answer I'm going to give is the right answer biblically, but there are many, many, many mighty men of God whom I respect and admire tremendously that do not exactly agree with the stance I take on this question. Do not take my word on this issue as authoritative. The majority of you listeners don't know me personally, and even if you do, this is a question that you should be wrestling with in the scripture and in prayer and with the leaders in your local church. All that said, 
And I hope it wasn't virtue signaling, but rather a warning to you to do your own scriptural due diligence. I believe that Christians are not under the Old Testament, Old Covenant commands, but are rather under the New Testament, New Covenant commands. By this, I mean that I believe that the Council of the Apostles in Acts 15 decided this very issue and concluded that all Gentile Christians, pause, what is a Gentile? Well, in the way the Bible speaks of the word Gentile, anybody who is not Jewish by birth is a Gentile. That means me. My birth parents were from Iowa. My adoptive parents are from Alabama. I live in California now. I wish I had Jewish blood all through my veins because Jesus was Jewish. And Paul and Peter and all those people in the Bible were Jewish. Well, I'm not Jewish. I'm just a plain old Gentile. That's okay, I guess, because God loves me and he loves you too. But as a Gentile Christian, not born in Israel, we are not under Old Testament commands. We are under New Testament commands. And the following four commands we get from Acts chapter 15. Number one, do not consume food that you know was offered to idols before or during its preparation. Number two, do not consume blood. Number three, do not eat anything that was strangled to death. Number four, do not engage in sexual immorality as defined in the Bible. Now, items one through three, and maybe even four, all seem to be very connected in separating Christians from the pagan practices of food preparation throughout the Roman Empire. Now, commenting on these passages, New Testament scholar Ben Witherington, in his socio-rhetorical commentary on the book of Acts, says this, Also relevant to our discussion is the evidence that the choking of the sacrifice, strangling it, and drinking or tasting of blood transpired in pagan temples. In regard to the former, we have evidence from magical papyri of the age of the attempt to choke the sacrifice and in essence transfer its life breath or spiritual vitality into the idol. And in regard to the latter, Dr. Ogilvy points to the practice mentioned occasionally in the literature of the priest tasting the blood of the sacrifice pagan priest doing that. The singular reference to blood at the end of the decree in Acts would be superfluous after the reference to abstaining from things strangled or choked if the meaning was to avoid meat with the blood still in it. It is more likely, says Dr. Witherington, that each item in the decree should be taken separately and all be seen as referring to four different activities that were known or believed to transpire in pagan temples. I believe these commands are still binding on Christians today. We must not knowingly eat food that was prepared according to pagan practices. Although Paul kind of elaborates this on, on this situation in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians. We must abstain from sexual immorality. Beyond that, 
We are no longer under the commands of the Old Testament, but the commands of the New Testament. Now, does that mean we are, for instance, free from the Ten Commandments? It does not, because nine of the Ten Commandments are still included and commanded in the New Testament, New Covenant. Now, the one exception to that rule is the Sabbath. We're going to talk about that on an upcoming episode, but today we don't want to go too deep and go too long, so we'll just have to save that one particular commandment. I need to stress here that I am not at all what is known as an antinomian. That means a person that is uh, against the law or disregards the law. I do believe that Christians are still under God's New Testament commands and we must follow them. It's not an option. I believe that the Old Testament is still the word of God and we must not seek to be unhitched from it. But new Christians, New Testament Christians, are no longer under the law, but under the grace of the new covenant. Now, Thomas Schreiner, who is an excellent scholar, I believe captures this very well in an article I linked to on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. And he says this, Saying that the old covenant has passed away doesn't mean that the Old Testament is no longer or somehow less the word of God. All of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, are the final authority as God's infallible and inerrant word. All of the Old Testament has a revelatory and pedagogical authority for believers in Jesus Christ. We must interpret the Old Testament in terms of God's progressive revelation in His covenants in order to discern how to apply it today. New Testament writers don't decide how to apply the Old Testament based on the moral, ceremonial, and civil divisions where the moral law continues to function as a moral norm. Such categories are actually quite useful, and there is significant truth in such divisions, but the New Testament itself doesn't apply the Old Testament law law to believers based on these categories. Doing so can introduce distortions when applying the Old Testament to our lives. All right, so that's a little deep. It's a little complicated. But what I'm saying is, once again, that in my view of what happened in Acts 15 and some other scriptures I'm about to read to you, we're not under a third of the Old Testament or a section of the Old Testament. It's all the Word of God. But we Gentile Christians, born outside of Israel, we are under the New Testament, the New Testament commands. They are commands. We are under them. We must follow them. And I don't just get this from Genesis 15. I get it from scriptures like Romans 6, 14. Paul says, sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 15, should we sin then because we're not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Or Romans 7, 6, but now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old of the letter of the law. Ephesians 2.15, he, Jesus, made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. Galatians 3.24, The law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 5.5 Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Take note, I, Paul, tell you, 
that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Now, by the way, that was not Galatians 5.5. That was Galatians 5.1 through 4. Verse 18 similarly says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And finally, maybe even most importantly, Hebrews 7.11. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of the law as well. Verse 18 says, So the previous command is annulled, because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So I believe that is the theological situation we face as Christians. We are not under the Old Testament. Therefore, me sitting here in my cotton polyester blended shirt and you sitting there listening to it in your blended fabrics are not sinning against God because you are not under Old Testament commands. You're under New Testament commands. And there are many, many specific commands, and you can't merely sum them up by saying, oh, love each other and love God. No, there are specific commands that we have to live by, such as the ones all concerning sexual immorality. So again, I'm not antinomian, but I believe we're under the new covenant. Now that's worth wrestling with, partially because I think it creates confusion when Christians post Old Testament scriptures to try to correct unbelievers. Um, there is a sense, as Paul says, that the, the law leads us to Christ. And I think that's good, but I think we should do a better job of thinking through what the New Testament tells us about how we should view the Old Testament, it is the Word of God, and what commands we're under. Well, that's something for you to wrestle with. Let's get into the rest of the readings for today, starting with Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, Here. Your slave is in your hands. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, 
Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring, and they will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her, you've conceived and you will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives." So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now, I don't want to comment too long on this passage and make the podcast go long. But one thing I need to point out here that happens in the Old Testament, and we don't always realize it, not every misdeed or wickedness in the Old Testament is immediately condemned and pointed out by God or a prophet or whatever that, hey, that was a sin. You're supposed to understand some of these things. So when Abram passed his wife off as his sister, we know that Abram blew it. When Sarai abused her servant, we know that she's being horrible. When Abram gives the servant over to his wife to mistreat her, we know that he's being horrible. This is a messy situation, but I do want you to see that in the midst of this awful, messy situation, God preserves Hagar, God preserves Ishmael, and grows Ishmael into a mighty and numerous people, a people who I believe will ultimately serve God's purposes. Nehemiah chapter 5. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our field and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. I, Nehemiah, became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. After seriously considering this matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, We've done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, 
What you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please let us stop charging this interest. Return their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you've been assessing them. They responded, We will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, May God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year until his thirty-second year, twelve years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every ten days, but I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. Finally, Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way, you've nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Summoning the crowd, he told them, Listen and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out. Out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter said, "Uh, Explain this parable to us. Do you still lack understanding, he asked? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, 
false testimony, slander. These are the things that defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from the region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her, and his disciples approached him and urged him, Hey, send her away, because she's just crying out after us. He replied, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him, and said, Lord, help me. He answered, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. Moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain and sat there, and large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples together and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and they have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry, otherwise they might collapse on the way. And the disciples said to them, him, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Seven, they said, and a few small fish. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. They collected this leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now there were 4,000 men who had eaten besides women and children. After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Amen. That was the word of the Lord. I hope that it was edifying to you, a blessing to you, an encouragement to you, a challenge to you, and the word of God to your ears, your heart, your soul, and your spirit. God bless you. Godspeed to you. We'll see you tomorrow.